You're listening to the So What Podcast. Every planet in our solar system plays a crucial role in making advanced life possible on Earth. And so this is an indication it's been uniquely designed because everywhere else we look, we don't see anything even close. When you're talking about billions of humans living on the planet where that high technology can be used to take the message of redemption through the creator of the universe to all the people groups of the world. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, the Thanksgiving holiday is upon us, and we at So What Podcast sincerely hope that you have a good holiday with family and friends, giving thanks to our Creator for all that He has given us. If you're looking for a reason to be thankful this season, look no further than this special episode of the podcast. We're going to take a brief break from our series, The Gospel According to Heretics, to speak with astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross about the sheer improbability that is our planet and the fact that it did not rise out of nowhere and for no purpose. In fact, Dr. Ross will argue our planet is uniquely created for a reason that God's image bearers would be able to experience redemption according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, before we head over to the discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the podcast, please help it grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at www.sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes may be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. And you can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for So What Podcast. Well, let's head over to our discussion with Dr. Hugh Ross. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you for joining So What Podcast again. It was wonderful having you here in Mobile, Alabama, the people of Mars Hill, back in spring to speak on God's two records, his creation and his word. Well, thank you, and I much enjoyed my time with you in Mobile. Well, since then, you've written a new book titled Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. It's published by Baker Books, and it's available through Reasons to Believe's website at reasons.org. Uh, And that's going to be the topic for our discussion today on this episode. So to begin, if you had to summarize this book in just a few sentences, what would you say? Well, the book is really about the habitability of our planet that makes possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short period of time. The book actually had its origin in my doing a year-long Bible study of all the Bible's creation texts and noting that every one of them links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption. Mm. And you actually find texts that say that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything. 
Well, that would imply that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. And that caused me to do a three-year-long study of the scientific literature, looking at all the different disciplines and putting that to the test. And Improbable Planet is basically the documentation that indeed that is correct. Every component of creation, every component of the universe, the earth, all of life's history, uh, all of its geophysical history, all of its life history, plays crucial roles in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short window of time. So that kind of hints at the title of the book, Improbable Planet. Is that correct? Right. That's right. How, I mean, not only did Earth become humanity's home, it became a home where billions of us could hear and respond to the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Creator. And is this a, a unique planet, would you say? I mean, is it possible that there are other planets similar to ours? Because it seems to me, as a layman, that recently there's been this uptick to drive our search for other planets. Uh, so is there is there a philosophy that's driving that to find life on other planets? And is it even possible that we may discover one like ours? Well, they have discovered 3,600 planets outside of our solar system. And some of them are Earth-sized, with about the same distance that Earth is uh, from our star relative to their star. And uh, But what they discovered were they're capable of measuring the water content of the planet. It comes in super water-rich. Mm. Five to 50% of the planet's total mass is water. Uh, planet Earth, by comparison, is only 0.03%. And that's what I find interesting, is the astrobiological community is convinced that if liquid water is on the planet, it's going to be a planet that's habitable for life and very likely going to have life on it. And the reason why they're convinced that it's so likely is when they look at planet Earth, the origin of life happened as early as the laws of physics would allow it to happen, and it happened extremely quickly. And because it happened as early as physics would permit and was very quick, they presume it must be an easy event. Mm. But what they're overlooking if you want the equivalent of human beings, it's crucial that the origin of life happen as early as the laws of physics permit, and it's got to happen immediately. Otherwise, you won't have enough time uh, to get humans on the planet before the window for all life on the planet uh, comes to a close. I mean, one thing you'll see in Improbable Planet, we humans are at the very end of the time window in which our planet will be habitable. And that's actually a good thing because we can reap the, the treasure of billions of years of biodeposits that have been laid up in the crust of the earth and use that to launch advanced civilization. So maybe a thing that we can compare and contrast is Earth to Mars. Obviously, Mars has been in the news uh, in the past decade plus with our missions to explore the surface for the first time in human history. We're able to get to Mars with rovers and actually dig into the ground and test it, and the idea that water would be present on Mars. What you're saying is that in the event of such a discovery, it's still not enough. It's, there's much more that needs to occur in order for a planet to be able to sustain human life. That's correct. I mean, yeah, all this attention on water. Water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. The universe is extremely wet. So the fact that we see water everywhere is really no big surprise. But when you look at, there's a chapter on probable planet on our dirt. And basically the message is we need not take our dirt for granted. It's a highly designed kind of dirt, 
a special dirt that will support advanced plants that will provide the food we need. If you go to Mars, uh, the soil on Mars has 60 times as much sulfur in it as Earth soil does. You're not going to be able to grow uh, plants on Mars. I know Matt Damon was trying to grow potatoes on Mars in the movie The Martian, uh, but that simply won't work. You're going to have to import Earth soil to Mars in order to be able to grow any food on Mars. That's incredible. I just finished going back through uh, Philip K. Dick's Martian time slip, and the whole premise is this ancient civilization dug out canals so that they can have water, so that they can grow crops and they can colonize Mars. We, we recognize how important it is for agriculture, but then kind of ignore all the science that, <laughs> you know, rains on our parade. What's an improbable planet is how amazing it is that we can engage in agriculture at all. Uh, in fact, uh, the time window in which you can engage in intense agriculture, it's only 10,000 years wide. Hmm. Only starting 9,000 years ago did we have the extreme climate stability and the fertilization of the great agricultural plains and the watering of those plains from ice melting from the last ice age that we could grow the food to sustain billions of human beings. And that window is going to close in about a thousand years or less. Well, that's bad news. Well, it's bad news in one sense. It's good news in another sense. That's more than enough time to complete the redemptive work that uh, you know we've been told to uh, accomplish as followers of Jesus Christ. And so, in fact, a friend of mine, Ralph Winter, uh, who was the U.S. Center for World Mission, he said, right now, evangelical Christians have the people, the technology, and the money to fulfill the Great Commission in five years. All we lack is the motivation. And what you'll see in Improbable Planet, God is giving us more than enough time to complete the job. And when we complete the job, he's going to take us to a far better realm, the new creation. And frankly, I'm in a hurry to get there because it's way better than what we see here in this uh, universe. So speaking of motivation, um, is there a philosophy or a motivation behind the drive that we see in science right now to discover life on other planets? Well, a very powerful motivation. I mean, it's being driven by people of a non-theistic worldview. And from a non-theistic worldview, you're going to need life to be abundant everywhere in the universe because uh, you're presuming that life happened without the agency of God. And therefore, it's got to be everywhere. And so they're convinced that if they look, they're going to find it. Uh, but the story of astrophysics is everywhere we look, we see hostility except on our own planet. Matter of fact, we can't even find a star that's a sufficient twin of our star, the sun, that it could be a candidate to have a planet orbiting it on which advanced life is possible. Lots of stars have twins of one another. Our star, the sun, has no twin. Our galaxy has no twin. I mean, that's what bothered me when I watched that, uh, uh, the Star Wars movies. It always begins with a galaxy far, far away. Hey, we astronomers have looked far, far away and we don't see any galaxy sufficiently like our Milky Way that it could be a candidate uh, for advanced light. So of all the planets that we have discovered, there are there close candidates, or is it in a completely different ballpark? It's in a completely different ballpark. Not only can't we find an adequate twin of our planet Earth, we can't find any twins of any of the eight planets in our solar system. Mm. And that has led to the discovery that every planet in our solar system plays a crucial role in making advanced life possible on Earth. For that matter, every comet and asteroid belt plays a crucial role in making advanced life possible 
here on planet Earth. And so this is an indication it's been uniquely designed because everywhere else we look, we don't see anything even close. So you mentioned um, the term design, and behind that is implicit a divine designer. And you see all this as you do in this book and, and much of the other material that you've written, that there is a divine fine-tuning behind the scenes. But other scientists would push back against your thesis to say that this is simply naturalism. There is nothing spiritual about it. There is no God. It's just natural evolution. Why do you see things differently from their perspective? Well, I've got about 50 books here in my library on uh, the fine-tuning of the universe that makes life possible. And the vast majority are written by people who are not believers. And so there's a concession today that we see overwhelming evidence for fine-tuning design in the universe and in the laws of physics to make life possible in the universe. That's typically where these works stop. They don't take it to the next level. Namely, we see all this fine-tuning the universe. Are we going to see it in our cluster of galaxies? Are we going to see it in our Milky Way galaxy? Are we going to see it in our star of the sun? What about the system of planets? What about the comet and asteroid belts? Uh, what about the interior structure of our planet? What about its surface structure? What about its history of geophysical activity? And what about its history of life? And the bottom line is, it's ubiquitous. Everywhere we look, at every size scale, all the way down to fundamental particles, we see this overwhelming evidence for fine-tuning design, not just for life, but especially for advanced life. One of the things that I've documented in a, a, a compendium on our website, it's reasons.org slash fine-tuning, is that the fine-tuning design goes up exponentially when you go from bacteria remaining on the planet for a few months uh, to microbes that remain for billions of years. And it goes up exponentially again when you introduce plants and animals. It goes up exponentially again when you talk about birds and mammals, and exponentially again for human beings. And what I document in my latest book, Improbable Planet, uh, the greatest exponentiation occurs when you're talking about billions of humans living on the planet mm -hmm. with a capability of developing global high-technology civilization where that high-technology can be used to take the message of redemption through the creator of the universe to all the people groups of the world. That's where you see the greatest fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. And I think of my colleagues who are not believers would actually look at the extent of the fine-tuning design and how it all kind of targets the human species and especially targets the redemptive message. They would take a different perspective assuming they had the humility to see it. Of all of the elements, because you've given us categories of fine-tuning, you've given us specific examples of fine-tuning or evidence of fine-tuning in the universe, what do you find to be either the most interesting or the most compelling? Or maybe a different way to phrase the question, of these fine-tuning elements, which ones do you find to be the most unbelievable? Well, what's something you'll see towards the end of the book is what we see in the recent history of humanity, uh, namely that uh, we have this remarkable situation where we got a very bright star. Our sun is brighter than it's ever been, and it's so bright that there should be no ice on our planet at all. For 90% of Earth's history, we've had no ice whatsoever. Today, we're in a warm interglacial, but it's still 10% ice coverage. During the last uh, glacial 
episode, it was 23% ice. But given how bright the sun is, we shouldn't have any ice at all. Uh, but what happened is you had five simultaneous uh, outstanding tectonic events uh, that transformed our planet from being completely ice-free into having this delicate ice age cycle. And I speak in the book about why that ice age cycle is, is essential for billions of us to be able to live on the planet at one time. Uh, but an ice age cycle brings about extreme climate instability. I mean, if you look at the last 800,000 years, the temperature on planet Earth, the global mean temperature, was jumping up and down by 24 degrees Fahrenheit over time scales of one or two centuries. That would make it impossible to engage in large-scale agriculture. Now, what drives the ice age cycle are seven different variations in the orbit of the Earth and the rotation uh, rate of the Earth. And these seven cycles congruently came together in such a way as to open up this tiny time window where instead of the temperature jumping up and down by 24 degrees Fahrenheit, it has remained stable to within two degrees Fahrenheit for the last 9,000 years. Mm. And it's that tiny window of extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature where we got melting ice uh, from the last ice age, where we got the fertilization of the agricultural plains as a result of that retreating ice, and where we have Canada and Siberia being transformed from deserts into heavily forested regions, thanks to the retreating of ice of the last ice age, that has made it possible for billions of us to be fed, and not only to be fed, but to have such a surplus of food that most of our population can be diverted from agricultural activity into engineering and science and technological development, which is making possible the spreading of the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to all the people groups of the world in decades, as opposed to millions or billions of years. It's mind-bending when you think about the unlikelihood of those happening outside of divine well, providence. Let me go them. back to the sun. There's mm -hmm. a reason why the sun must be as bright as it is, because only when it's as bright as it is right now does the sun have the adequate luminosity stability to sustain human civilization. And it's also a very tiny time window in which we have very low ultraviolet X-ray and flaring radiation coming out of the sun. And the time window when the sun is stable enough uh, for human civilization to be possible, it's less than 100,000 years wide. So it explains why God created Adam and Eve when he did, and uh, why we see humanity being able to so quickly uh, develop high-technology uh, civilization. And it's also you, uh, coinciding with a unique time window in which our planet Earth has been distant from supernova eruptions. I mean, if you go back into the last ice age, we had supernova exploding uh, 200, 300, 500, 800 light years away. In the last 9,000 years, there's never been a supernova eruption any closer than 5,000 light years. Far enough away, it has no impact on our agricultural productivity. But that kind of episode has never happened before in the history of the Earth. That's incredible. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about Reasons to Believe, and one of the reasons I've followed the ministry for a while, is that as you've alluded to over and again, even in our conversation today, this information is very interesting. 
It's incredible. It's God's general revelation, his book of nature to us. But it doesn't stop there. It should lead us to, like you said, thanksgiving, really, of who God is, what he has done in the person and work of his son and our Lord Jesus Christ, that the reason we are here is because of him and that we have been given a task and a mission, not only to bear his image well on this planet, but since the fall to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ through the gospel. And you do this uh, in your book as well. I wanted to read a passage because I think it, it makes this point. On page 225, you write, This holy book, the Bible, makes sense of what was, what is, and what will be. It anticipates what each generation of humanity, including our own, needs to know in order to discover our origin and fulfill our destiny. It, it identifies a reasonable source of nature and nature's law, as well as humans and their, and their capabilities, including the compulsion to reason. And just more importantly, it identifies the ultimate aim of the created realm. And so you always bring back everything you talk about to special revelation, to the purpose of why we were created and why we are here. Right, and I've had a chance to speak to some secular scientists on the topic of my book, uh, making the appeal that a better way to advance scientific understanding and knowledge is to interpret the realm of nature from a redemptive perspective. That if we use a redemptive perspective, it's going to be able to guide our scientific exploration in a way that will be much more productive than if we don't take that perspective. And so that's been getting a listening ear from unbelieving scientists saying, hey, this may be a very efficient way uh, to do science, but it also plants a seed. Hey, if everything was put into place to make possible redemption, don't we need to take that redemptive message very seriously? Look at everything God has done to make that possible. We need to really consider uh, this, what this redemptive message is and how we need to respond. And the redemptive message, you've said earlier in the show, the redemptive plan of God came prior to his creation. Everything about his creation has been moving in a redemptive direction. And I think sometimes we think of redemption as just the here and now, but there is a future redemption that even creation is moving towards, isn't there? Well, it's redemption specifically for the benefit of his human beings. But as Paul writes in his letters, uh, the righteous angels are intently observing us to learn about the grace of God. Uh, so there's a redemptive impact that it has on the angels as well as on us human beings. So we need to realize there's a grander purpose. And when we get to the new creation, we're going to have careers. We're not going to be sitting on clouds playing hearts. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we'll be doing that too in our, in our off time. But we're going to have very meaningful and highly uh, significant careers in the new creation, Paul told us, we'll be teaching and instructing uh, the angels, and we'll be magistrates over whatever God creates in the new creation. And so we're being prepared for a future task, which means we need to take our training here on earth seriously. And when I said God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything, 2 Timothy 1.9, the grace of God that we now experience was put into effect before the beginning of time. Or Titus 1.2, the hope that we share in Jesus Christ was given to us before the beginning of time. Time is the beginning of God's creation. So before God created anything, he was already putting into effect his works of redemption. Mm -hmm. 
that again implies that everything that God creates is for that purpose. And uh, Paul tells us the angels are mystified by the magnificence of uh, God's redemptive plan, and therefore we're being intently observed. What would be your hope for somebody who picks up Improbable Planet and reads it? What is your hope for the reader? My hope for the reader, assuming it's a Christian reader, is that they will be sent. I mean, I every time I speak to an audience, what I try to do is engender through the information and the from the book of nature that people will begin to worship. They'll begin to worship the creator. So, yeah, my goal is that the Christian would have a worshipful experience and seeing all that God has done on his or her behalf. But after that, they would be motivated to find a non-Christian they can put the book into the hands of. Mm. I mean, the book has only been out for a month, but already I'm hearing reports of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ through being exposed to just a few chapters of the book. So, yeah, my real prayer is that every believer that gets the book uh, will find one or two unbelieving friends that they can pass the book on to. You know, my life verse is 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready with good reasons for the hope within you, with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. So uh, my prayer is that people would equip themselves with good reasons and recognize that God is providing us with additional good reasons, literally on a daily basis. So every day we get new reasons to believe. And we, if we can share those reasons with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience, you will see God supernaturally bringing people to you that are prepared to hear. So what? Who cares about the improbability of our planet existing just the way it is? Well, as Dr. Ross has argued in his book, Improbable Planet, the sheer improbability that our planet is the way it is shows that there is a God beyond our comprehension who creates and redeems. He has formed the sun, placed every planet, and hung even every asteroid in their proper place so as to create the right environment for our planet to exist. There is no other planet like our home that we have discovered, which is something that we have every reason to give thanks to our Creator for. Well, we hope you join us next time as we continue our series on the Gospel According to the Heretics with an in-studio guest, Dr. Robert Olson, to discuss the heresies that came from Nestorius and Eutyches.